Thanks for listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Most of us probably know one friend or another that always goes to extremes. You know, the friend that gets into something and just goes into it head first, all out. Like they get into a particular sport, for example, and suddenly they have all the equipment and all the gear. They watch things about it, talk things about it, spend time doing it. They might go to amateur events on the weekend or join a Tuesday night league to play it. I mean, they're 100% in going to the extreme. Just a few months ago, they knew nothing about it or very little at least. Now they're all in and going for it full throttle. Or maybe they get into something new like they decide they're now into coffee and suddenly they're a homemade barista, mastering pour overs and cold brews, roasting their own beans or cultivating a collection of coffee from around the world. They can tell you all about coffee and make sure they do so. And though they don't mean to turn into a coffee snob, they've gone a bit overboard and the new coffee connoisseur in your circles no longer approves of your pumpkin spice latte you got at the drive-thru around the corner. Or maybe it's a fitness craze or a diet of some sort or home brewing or knitting or cross-stitch for, for quilting or playing an instrument or some artistic pursuit or charitable organization or ministry at church. You probably know that person or you are that person. When they are in, they are all in. And sometimes you just brace yourself for when this phase will come to a fizzling halt and the next extreme is about to launch. And sure enough, like clockwork, right on time, here comes the next wave. And they are listing online the equipment they bought at a heavily discounted price, others swooping in to take the spoils of yet another fad or phase gone by. Well, you have got to admire their passion and enthusiasm. And what they lack in perseverance and long-term commitment, they have in zeal and fair-weather devotion. Some people may have thought that Paul, the apostle, was in a phase. When he switched teams and went from being a Pharisee persecuting the church to being a Jesus lover preaching in church. And they wondered when this extreme shift in calling would go back to the old way of doing things. But for Paul, it was not a phase. And in fact, as he writes Colossians, he's been at it for some time, consistently faithful and devoted enough to end up in prison in Rome for preaching the name of Christ wherever he went. Paul is extreme about Jesus, but it's not just a phase. But this is one reason he's writing the church and is concerned for them. For though the Colossian believers had come to simple faith in the simple gospel of Jesus and experienced the transforming work of salvation and of being born again, some of those with extreme tendencies were trying to lure them away into the latest spiritual fads. Some were legalists, telling them they could go deeper with Jesus if they just did a few more things and didn't do certain other things. Others were mystics or hyper-spiritual, telling them there would be a new spiritual breakthrough if they just opened themselves up to some additional aspects of spirituality. Others were ascetics, telling them the next phase of their spirituality would really kick in here if they just denied themselves a few more things. And Paul says, no way, don't go to these extremes. He's writing to encourage them to stay right in the center and that they were complete in Jesus and they didn't need to buy into any of this other stuff. No additives, no going out to left field for a different view of Christianity. It's something interesting about our human nature. We are prone to want to add to what we already have. And for the Colossian believers and for us as well, Jesus plus something else was wholly unnecessary. For Jesus alone is what God has given us to begin a restored relationship with him. And while we can all certainly go deeper in that relationship with God, 
going in the directions of legalism or mysticism or asceticism or any other ism in the attempt to gain more of God's favor or a more exclusive audience with him, well, such extremes are really in vain. And it's in this vein that Paul writes to the Colossians, reminding them that they need, all that they need in order to get to God has already been provided for them in what Jesus accomplished. And if they desire to go deeper, Jesus is willing to meet them there. We take a look at this in this podcast at Colossians 2, verses 11 through 23. Remember, Paul is watching this from a distance and cringing in his seat as he hears from his house arrest in Rome that these well-meaning Colossian believers are being deceived, lured away by those trying to mix things with the, perp- with the pure gospel that they knew. And to Paul, it was poison. No matter how little of a dose or how big of a dose, it's, it's like when you, if you were to go to your aunt's, your grandma's, or your mom's house for a big holiday meal, and all the good traditional holiday foods are laid out on the table after hours of cooking many hands working hard in the kitchen. Now, the wonderful smells wafting through the kitchen and through the house, your taste buds going into high gear at the thought of chowing down. And your aunt or your grandma or your mom, just before you say grace, tells the whole group that somewhere in the cooking process, a box of rat poison inadvertently got tipped over in the kitchen. While the kitchen counters were full of bowls and pans and ingredients and mixing and chopping and a lot of activity going on. And part of the box of the poison was emptied out. And those pellets, though just some of them ended up in some dish or maybe two or three dishes, no one really kept track. But she is sure it's going to be fine and says, we'll just pray a little harder at grace and we should be good, I think. Well, no matter how good the meal is traditionally, that food is tainted. And no telling who or how bad or how long, but someone or more than a few are bound to get sick because the poison is there somewhere. Even just a little poison has ruined the food. Paul has always promoted good, solid, healthy teaching of the things of God and has little tolerance for any poisonous additives. And if you've ever gotten sick over a bad meal, be it food poisoning or anything else, it's hard to forget it. And mention that tainted meal again, and your stomach remembers for sure. Paul remembers for sure that legalism had made him sick for so long, as a Pharisee believing that keeping the law made him righteous. But it never did. And he was so relieved when he finally understood the gospel, the good news that we are sinners saved by grace, and that the law was only a tutor to show us our need for a Savior. So Paul is on high alert as he hears that some were teaching the Colossian believers that they needed to add a little law, a bit of legalism, to their diet. But Paul knows that teaching them this can only make things these otherwise healthy believers sick spiritually. So he writes in verses 11 and 12 of Colossians 2, In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. In Jesus, you were also circumcised, Paul says. This is great news to these mostly Gentile believers in Colossae. These are non-Jews, because apparently some were teaching that even though these Colossians had been saved, then now they would benefit by going the extra step and having the males circumcised, even though they weren't Jews, just this little extra step for good measure, and to show further separation from this world and unto God. Surely God would accept them more than he already did now that they knew Jesus if they would just undergo circumcision. 
Now, circumcision was given by God to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, as a sign of the covenant that he made with Abraham to be a father of many nations in spite of his lack of offspring with his wife, Sarah. Telling Abraham in Genesis 17, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant one that God would always keep, at least on his part. And this covenant was, as we continue in Genesis 17, to be God to you and your descendants after you. And as part of this covenant, this promise, God said, also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's one reason the Jews even today are so adamant about their land and why we still see so much conflict in the Middle East today because of that promise that he would give them that land. And so God goes on in Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So the Jews had continued with this, even to the time that Paul is writing, and even till today. Circumcision was a symbolic cutting away of the flesh to be dedicated to God. The physical cutting away was a sign that they were a people whose hearts were given to God, as we see in Deuteronomy 10.16. Therefore, circumcise, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. And again in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, these non-Jewish believers in Colossae were being told that they too should get circumcised to show their dedication to Jesus. But Paul says that when they came to faith, they essentially were circumcised, though not physically, but that their hearts had shown that they were dedicated and separated to God. As we read here in Colossians earlier, In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. It took place. You can't show it to them or prove it to them, but God still sees it. At least that's what Paul says. And so to go ahead and to do the physical circumcising, it would be pointless. As Paul wrote the Galatian church in chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It's pointless, he says. It accomplishes nothing. But faith working through love. That is the true evidence to look for, Paul wrote to the Galatians. Were they trusting and living by faith? And was it motivated by love? You can tell when Jesus has worked in someone's life, when someone has truly come to know him, because there is an eternal change or eternal changes that take place. The heart changes, attitude changes, perspective changes. They're still the same person, but truly born again, a new life living in the old body. So for these Colossians, adding some physical symbol because it was prescribed in the law would benefit them in no way. They had essentially already checked off that box. Paul writing, You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. The new covenant symbol they had shown was their baptism, declaring to the world what had already taken place in their hearts, that they were new dying to the old life, buried with Jesus in baptism, and raised in new life. That's one of the symbols of baptism, and why many practice a full immersion baptism, because it symbolizes a funeral. 
that we are bearing this person's old life and that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The Jews had ritual cleansings where they would go into the baths called mikveh to be ceremonially clean before God, before making a sacrifice, before a significant event like a marriage, before going to the temple. They would walk down the steps into the water of the mikveh. They would go under and then come out of the steps on the other side, ceremonially clean. Now, the water itself accomplished no cleansing. I can just imagine communal bath water after a full day of people headed to the temple, one after another, going into the mikveh and out the other side. But even in that, the ritual did no cleaning. It was the heart and a spiritual work that God was doing in the person's life. Going through the motions will never get us closer to God. We can be doing the right things and still be far from him. Going to church, doing charitable things, putting religious activity in our schedules. But inwardly, what does God see? For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We don't need to become legalistic, following outward traditions or symbols or rules in order to grow closer to God or in order to show other people that we're closer to God. People may pressure us to do those things and suggest we join in and get on board, but God is not looking for those things or impressed by those things. And the problem is that then we can begin to trust in those things and no longer look to cultivate a living relationship with God, pointing to things in the past with nothing to show in the present. That's what happens with legalism is oftentimes we can look back. We're not cultivating a relationship today with God, but we're leaning on something from the past. I remember on the mission field, Slovenia was a very religious nation for the most part. Lots of religious symbols and activity and opportunities. And when talking with many young people, when the topic of God came up, their faces would light up and they'd say, oh yeah, I went to confirmation or oh yeah, I had my first communion sometime there in their early teen years, pointing to something years ago as potential evidence for being right with God today. But they weren't cultivating a current relationship or pursuing a daily walk with God today. And we can't trust in outward things of the past for something with God today. Our legalism and religious acts don't help our situation with God. Paul reminds the Colossians in verses 13 through 15 about what Jesus accomplished without any help from us. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. Before Jesus, we were dead, dead in trespasses and in our unclean flesh, trespasses. If you've even ever seen a no trespassing sign, you know that you were told not to enter. And if you step foot on that land, you're trespassing. You've knowingly stepped over the line. We are all sinners, dead in our sin nature, which we inherited from Adam. But it doesn't take long for us to pile on the sin of our own. As we walk, or even as babies, begin to crawl across the lines we know that we shouldn't cross, trespassing against God as we move in areas he told us are not good. And yet Jesus made us alive together with him. In his resurrection and victory over death, we have been ushered into new life as well. It says there, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's interesting. 
This teaching going on around in Colossae was trying to get these believers to add the law to what they already believed in Jesus, to adorn their faith with these accessories of the law. But those requirements, as Paul writes here, were contrary to us. You see, the law was a tutor to show us our need for a Savior. You can try your best to keep the law, but it goes against our very nature. You might go for a bit, but eventually you'll fall or fail in one point. And just doing it most of the time is not good enough. Like James wrote, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Stumbling in a single point is the same as breaking all of them. And so trying to revive that legalism, that law, and put it on is not necessary because Jesus did away with it, as Paul says. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I can just picture here the pages and pages of requirements to keep under the law nailed there on the cross, the entire manual of the law fluttering in the wind, showing that the law is dead to us. It has no power over us. Apparently in those days when a debt was owed and taken care of, a public notice could be nailed up for all to see. Kind of like at the store or some other public bulletin board, maybe at the library or something, where people put up notices about garage sales or lost puppies or houses for rent letting the public know of some opportunity. They might post notice that a debt that was owed and the amount that was owed was no longer an issue. That's what they do in those days. It had been taken care of. They would post it publicly, and it was declared publicly to be forgiven, to be dealt with, to be paid in full. It feels great to have a debt paid off, to make that last payment. I have a friend whose church recently paid off their mortgage for the church, and they did it early, inadvertently actually, because they didn't really realize it, because the person paying the church bills had been paying an older amount, which was higher than their monthly payment was actually supposed to be. So every month they were paying according to that old number, and it was actually a higher amount. So they were surprised one month when the notice came that the balance had been paid off instead of getting another mortgage notice in the mail. They thought they had a few more years left on it, but to their pleasant surprise, it was paid in full, and they were thrilled. The church had a celebration and a symbolic mortgage-burning party, a public display that the debt had been paid off, and they were free from it. Jesus took the law and the debt and took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, publicly displaying it for all to see. So if it was such common knowledge that the requirements of the law were settled, it would be pointless for these Colossians to try and cover their bases with a bit of law added to their faith. We can have this tendency. We like checklists to feel like we can check things off and feel like we have accomplished, or, but no regiment of religious duty or action or ritual or activity can make us any closer to Jesus because he did it for us. And by faith, we enter in just as easily at any moment, no matter how recently we have accomplished any religious feats. Since this area is such a passion project of Paul, seeing that he had been a, a Pharisee in his past and he used to press the law on everyone, he wants to make sure he is clearly understood adding a few more examples in verses 16 and 17, where he speaks about the Jewish calendar and the festivals. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one judge you, Paul says. Over food and drink, he speaks of the kosher diet, foods that were clean and unclean according to the law, which we'll talk about a little bit later too. And the new moon or the Sabbaths, these ceremony days. God knows no time. Times and calendars are something for us, for man. But we can easily fall into traditions of schedules and times. 
the Jews kept the Sabbath because they were commanded to keep it holy. But by the New Testament days, it had morphed into something more about man's religiosity than God's original intent. Even the New Testament church, it appears that they met on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, in honor of the Lord's resurrection. But that was a work day in those societies. In fact, in Gentile lands, there was no Sabbath. You worked seven days a week. It was a step of faith for the Jews to take a single day off, trusting that the Lord would provide for them and bless them, accomplishing and earning in six days what others could do in seven. But the Jews met on the Sabbath. Some Christians met on Sunday, the first day of the week, but the day was not important. Just what you did, that you did set apart time to worship the Lord with his people. Paul wrote about this in Romans 14, years before he ended up in Rome, where he is currently writing this letter from. He writes in Romans 14, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observe it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So if they were getting pressure to keep some diets and schedules to prove their devotion to God, Paul tells them they can let that go. They can let go of food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. These things were just shadows as the light of Christ was approaching. These things cast a shadow projected into the distance in the future, but all those things were fulfilled in Jesus, the substances of Christ. Now, Paul spent a bit of time disarming the extreme of legalism, adding the law to try and get closer to Jesus. But there were other things creeping into the church in Colossae that were trying to move these believers off to one side or the other. We get hints of the next one in verses 18 and 19. As we've mentioned before, there was an angelic cult in Colossae. This mystic teaching, very spiritual, but not accurate at all. And while many people go off into legalism, others can go off into hyper-spirituality of other kinds of mysticism. Paul writes in verses 18 and 19, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished in it together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. In regards to this hyper-spirituality and mysticism, Paul says again, don't be cheated. We looked at being cheated on the last podcast, where we saw in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Here again, this caution not to be cheated again. It's a different word this time, translated beguile in the King James Version. It's when others rob you of your prize. And the false spirituality being offered to the Colossians, their worship of angels, would rob them of their reward, salvation in Jesus Christ. It would sever them from the head, from Jesus. And any body part cut off from the head cannot last long. People seem to be okay with spirituality. You hear people say, oh, I believe in God, or oh, I'm a spiritual person, and no one seems to bat an eyelash. But Jesus was clear. 
He is the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to God. So adding anything to that cuts us off from the head, or pursuing anything else cheats us of our reward. In Colossae, it was the angel worship added to their faith in Christ. This idea of angels, guardian angels or something, lower spiritual beings as intermediaries between us and God. And there is biblical basis for angels, but these teachings and beliefs were extra biblical, even pagan in nature, a pagan spirituality being mixed in with Jesus. The church today needs to be cautious of this, not necessarily of angels only, but pagan religiosity being mingled with the gospel as new age teachings creep on the perimeters of the church. Pew Research found a few years ago that among the most religious in America, about one in three persons in that group believes in psychics, 32%, and that spiritual energy can be located in physical objects, 29%. About one in five believed in reincarnation, 19%, and in astrology, 16%. The numbers get higher for other groups, but this was amongst the most religious Other hints of New Age philosophy are things like universalism, that all roads lead to God, and you have your way and I have my way. It's a growing trend amongst Christians where we don't want to sound too dogmatic lest we make those from other backgrounds feel not accepted, or don't want to sound too confident that what we believe is right and in turn everything else then must be wrong, so we just kind of say, well, I know what I believe and it's right for me. The law of attraction is also non-biblical. Being told to believe, imagine, or visualize what you want from God, and he will make it true for you. It's a very me-centered gospel that has grown in leaps and bounds amid materialism. And some feel can bridge the gap to a non-believing world that will envy the prosperity of us as Christians, then inquire about God, our genie in a bottle. There's also the New Age-inspired push to follow our feelings and that our emotions are indicators of truth and guidance. People are often told to do what feels right, which can be dangerous since our hearts can be deceptive, and we should do what God's Word says and not just what feels right in the moment. Or the unbiblical perspective that says that because we are children of God, we are also mini-gods and can obtain anything we please because we are also divine in nature, so we can tap into that nature and change the world accordingly without a dependency on the truly divine one, Jesus. Some of this can be subtle, but it's definitely not biblical. But spirituality that is not right in the center is spirituality that is off base. Some spirituality that people turn to has some biblical roots. Some people go off into getting all caught up in demon theology, rebuking and generational curses and demonizing. Some people go off in the spiritual gifts that are outlined in scriptures, getting caught up in seeking spiritual experiences or focusing all on the prophetic and moving away from a biblical foundation or pursuing signs and wonders all the time in an unhealthy balance. Some people have gone off into universalism, adopting practices or beliefs of other faiths, justifying ways of incorporating them into the Christian life. There's also the spirituality of saints and intermediaries, petitioning men and women of God who have gone before us, turning to them rather than directly to Jesus for help in times of need, or even things as simple as when a loved one has passed, saying things like, I know they're watching over me now. There's no biblical basis for that. A nice thought, sure. A comforting hope? that life somehow continues with them in this life, but it's not the gospel. Let no one cheat you of your reward, not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. There's no nourishment, there's no life in any spiritual pursuit that is not founded in Christ, that does not lead to Christ, that is not found in Jesus, the head. 
well-meaning Christians can sometimes find themselves in a rut spiritually, walking by faith, but maybe lacking some zeal or passion or emotion. They're going through a dry spell. So they'll venture off into some new spirituality or mystic pursuit, rather than abiding in Jesus, trusting that the relationship will continue to bear fruit. Those things bring us no closer to Jesus. Hyper-spirituality cannot replace faithful spirituality, patient spirituality, obedient spirituality. John wrote in his epistle, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. And Paul to the Thessalonians encouraged them to be fruitful in the spirit, but to be cautious in spirituality and mysticism. He wrote, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. They should be open to true biblical manifestations of the spirit, but to test all things against the word of God. Peter warned in his second letter, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in light of all of this, Paul doesn't want the Colossians or us cheated by going off in some spiritual direction that diminishes our connection to the head, to Jesus. And that does to the body the opposite of what he does. This malnourishes instead of nourishes. It divides instead of knitting us together. It shrinks or stunts growth instead of growing the believer. Spirituality that is not right in the center is spirituality that is off base. Growing up in Hawaii, we participated in a sport called outrigger Hawaiian canoe racing. And the canoe was weighted on one side with an outrigger, or an ama in Hawaiian, that extended out to the left of the boat to keep it upright. But much care was given to keep the boat centered. Even in moments of rest, someone was usually called to lean out to the left to distribute weight because even slight shifts of extra weight on the right, say someone turning over the right shoulder to talk to the person behind or someone leaning out to the right to get some ocean water to splash into the face of, to cool down or too many crew members paddling on the right at the same moment, this uneven distribution of weight could send the canoe over, capsizing in the ocean. Flipping over was called huliing, and you always try to avoid huliing at all costs. So it was one of the first lessons that was drilled into us in the junior division. Keep your weight centered and always be aware so as not to huli the canoe. Now, leaning out in any spiritual direction that is extra-biblical or unbiblical or even hyper-biblical, twisting scripture to get overly focused on some spiritual element that is fruitless and more wrapped up in experience or feeling or hype than in knowing Jesus more— such things can flip you over in your faith, leaving you dead in the water. But staying centered in, in biblical spirituality, finding balance in those things, it's a sure way to stay in the race and to keep your head above water. Now, this doesn't mean that God's not going to challenge us sometimes spiritually. You might have to raise your hands in worship, something that you never did before, but you thought, ooh, that's super spiritual. You might learn more about the gifts and discover that you have gifts you didn't even know before, you didn't even think still existed in the church, like the gift of tongues. That doesn't necessarily mean that you've gone off the deep end. It just means that you're pressing in for the things that God has for you. But we've looked at these things. We've looked at legalism that couldn't bring them any closer to God and the spirituality that didn't add anything to what they had in a faithful relationship with Jesus, though God will push us out of our spiritual comfort zone sometimes. But Paul warns them now against a third extreme that the believer might get caught up in, asceticism, as we finish the chapter in verses 20 through 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, 
which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Self-regulating, asceticism, going to extreme self-discipline and denying oneself physical things of this life to achieve some deeper spirituality. This was something going around in Colossae, since the early Gnostics were present, teaching that the spirit and the physical are not connected. Now, some Gnostics then indulged the flesh, feeling that since the spirit and the flesh were separate, that there was nothing you could do physically that could harm your spirit, so just gratify your flesh. But other Gnostics were ascetics, denying their physical needs in an attempt to achieve something spiritual. Throughout history, some have gone down this route. Some monks have slept on boards, worn hairy shirts, exposed themselves to extremes of heat and cold, lived on top of pillars, gone without bathing, fasted, and remained celibate in their attempts to deal with the flesh. Some in Colossae were teaching that asceticism would achieve deeper spirituality. But asceticism erroneously sees the body as something bad to be totally suppressed, even though God created it and said it was good and though we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, granted, we can't just indulge the flesh, living according to it, that if it feels good, do it, or if it's, it's just natural after all, reasoning that many live by today. In contrast to asceticism, self-discipline sees the body as good, but needing control. And living under self-discipline as a follower of Jesus and being an ascetic are two different things. Asceticism calls everything material bad. Self-discipline seeks to use and enjoy the things of the world in a way that brings glory to God and causes us to worship Him more. Asceticism thinks there is something wrong with joy and pleasure. Self-discipline seeks fullness of joy and pleasure with God in the picture and pursuing it in ways that honor God. Asceticism is restrictive, focused on what not to do. Self-discipline has true freedom as its focus, as an athlete in training may show self-discipline and skip desserts and unhealthy food to achieve the goal of winning. Asceticism focuses on obeying commands that man has said are important, even adding things to the Bible. Self-discipline, though on the other hand, looks to God's commands as the standard for what we should obey. Asceticism has often behind it a feeling that one needs to gain God's acceptance or to like them more. Self-discipline comes out of knowing that God has accepted us and that security that that brings with the desire to live life fully for him. This ascetic extreme in Colossae may have looked and sounded really spiritual to the believers, but as Paul writes here, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It appeared wise. It it was self-imposed, not commanded by God. It was a false humility and, in fact, was actually full of pride. Neglected the body, which was to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but there was no value in it. It was profitless. Asceticism didn't help at all against the indulgences of the flesh because, like a caged beast, as soon as the cage door is open, the wild tendencies come back. Like the day after the diet at the dessert buffet, everything is fair game. Paul says a key thing here. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They appear to be wise, to be spiritual, to be more mature by what they are refraining from outwardly. But they appear so before man, but not before God. God is not impressed by asceticism, nor by mysticism or hyper-spirituality, nor by legalism. God is pleased by a broken and contrite heart, one who is broken over their sinful nature and in awe of a holy God, approaching him in the way he has prescribed through Jesus. As Psalm 51.17 says, A broken and a contrite heart, 
These, O God, you will not despise. So these Colossians, and we have a choice. Will we stick to the middle ground right in the center of the faith, or will we venture out to extremes trying to fill some need or void or feeling or ego, but missing the point of where God wants us to abide and find contentment in him? God wants us to be centered in him, to hear his voice guiding us, as Isaiah says, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Satan, though, lures us to extremes, corrupting good things and perverting them in some ways, as he finds joy, I'm sure, in seeing believers get out of balance, to twist discipline and turn it into binding, paralyzing, obsessive legalism, to lure the spirit-filled believer who starts out in desiring and pursuing biblical giftings into seeking the gifts and not the giver, into being open to experiences that God does not point back to Jesus, and even dabbling in deceiving spirits as they push the boundaries of a biblical spirituality. To draw the sincere follower of Jesus who is seeking to walk in humility or simplicity and pushing them into asceticism, fasting versus to be seen by men or some other act or self-denial that has little basis in abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Things to the extreme are never good. The weather in Oklahoma can be very extreme. I remember my first winter here. It was New Year's Eve, and as sun was setting, we were working out outside in our shorts and t-shirts, doing some physical routine, getting some sweat going for the new year. And by the next morning, it was below zero. It was it was freezing. It was crazy, crazy weather. And and yeah, it was it was quite a shock to this Hawaii boy to see weather change so quickly like that. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he says, I desire that you would not be t- tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that they would be grounded in the fruit and the truth, that they would have a firm foundation. They, w- they would be consistent in each season. Yeah, they may have some ups and downs, but that they would have a consistent temperature, a consistent passion, a consistent service to Jesus Christ. The world and the church needs believers that can be counted on to be anchored when the world is crazy and shifting all over. And the best way to do this is to find ourselves planted and rooted in Jesus. As Jesus was giving his final instructions to the disciples, Thomas had a moment of panic, knowing this was their last time with Jesus. John 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Thomas began to get anxious. Lord, what's next? What do we do now? We followed you for three years. Tell us what the next thing is, the new thing is. What direction are we headed? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Knowing Jesus more, he's where it's all at. We don't need to feel like we need to keep up with the newest thing or that we need some new way of doing things or pursuing things. We just need to know Jesus more. He was the way, he told Thomas. He was the truth. He was the life. And knowing him was the way to get closer to the Father.